Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts. And uh, Eric and Aaron for leading us in song. Um, Well, a few things before we come to the exposition of God's Word. Um, Certainly, I want to really thank the Lord for all of you and for everybody who participated in our baptism service last week. And we are so appreciative. And I just want to let you all know I've heard from many, not only in our church, but outside of our church, uh, just how much they were really blessed by God's work last week. And that includes the men who inflated the tub and filled it with warm water to those who moved the cables and the stands and everybody who participated in that. So church family, thank you for what you did. And we're just thankful to the Lord and the way in which we're all able to serve the Lord in that way. Um, also thankful as well for everybody who was able to serve and participate in NCT and going to the Biblical Counseling Conference yesterday. Um, it was a sweet time. I was able to be there for a short period of time, but just thankful for um, the hearts of those in our church who were able to serve and participate in that way. And uh, also, as you see, I have a new PowerPoint up there, and that's courtesy of the gracious help of, of Alice and Cindy. Well, we return this morning to the God-breathed words of Genesis, and our summer theme has been hopefully the God of Genesis. I was supposed to do a part two on this, and by God's grace, got COVID, and Ted was able to step in. It means I've had a month to mull over this, and because I'm Chinese, I want to give you value, so you'll get four sermons in one today, so you can put your seatbelts on. But what we're looking at as we walk through is what does Genesis really tell us about the God who loves us and created us and gave his son to die for us? And that's what Eric led us in song this morning. At the end of the day, his desire is that we would know him and be with him. And that's his great love for us. And so as we walk through Genesis, and very specifically Genesis 4, we see in the way in which the Lord makes his love to us, even when we are angry or we are upset, in our conflicts, in our frustration, in our irritability, in our anxiety. And we see the way in which God works in our lives, and it's timely. It seems like for our church, the focus of the summer series have been on anxiety and anger. That seems to be where the Lord keeps on bringing us back. And he probably does so because I need it, first and foremost. But in this COVID era, we become a nation and a people, and even in our churches, that have been really marked by anger and anxiety. These are the two things that seem to really be the burdens in many ways. And so God in his grace, as I look back and somewhat from our point of view, serendipitously, these are the areas that he has chosen for our church to focus on. And as I've been thinking about these things, I read an article from the Los Angeles Times while I was sick, and it caught my attention. Could I have my next slide, please? And it was an LA Times article by uh, an author named Jen Dahl on why we fight on vacation why we fight on vacation, and how to stop the madness. Quote, summer travel, it's something we think about longingly. Yet inevitably, there is a moment in which things do not work out as we hoped or expected. You scream at your kids who can't look away from their screens. 
You end up hashing out the darkest details of your relationship in front of a bunch of strangers. And then you fly home together, not sure if you will ever speak again. And she goes on to say, first things first, breathe. We'll do an um, right? This is totally normal. And then she quotes Dr. David Austern, clinical assistant professor at one of these major institutes. He says, I have 100% had adult tantrums at Disney, the happiest place on earth. And their point is, this is completely normal, right? And then she goes on to quote Dr. Antoinette Gupta, who's a psychologist in Orange County. And Dr. Gupta proceeds to explain that yelling at each other on vacation is a panic response coded into our DNA. It's connected with the amygdala, a part of our brains that's involved with processing fear. And then she goes on to claim that physical distress and self-preserving emotions and behavioral patterns like withdrawing or attacking, fight or flight mechanism, are caused by feeling like we're not getting what we need from loved ones. Okay, and as you look at the PowerPoint, hopefully you can see this, and where this goes is a feelings-driven life is normal. Feelings-driven life is how we're coded, how we're wired, that this is normal. And because of that, what's normal is yelling at one another when we don't feel like we're getting what we need, especially from those we love, or withdrawing, two sides of the same coin. And so what's the remedy for this? This is normal. This is how we all function. So what's the remedy for this? And of course, it goes on to talk about the remedy is really psychological therapy or medical therapy where we provide management or restraints or controls on our feelings or our responses and our behaviors. They're normal as long as they don't cause us or other people problems. So how do we put a lid on it? Okay, now, I want to say first things first. What does God say? And I'm going to paraphrase. I suspect God would say, hold your breath. Because yelling and withdrawing and attacking, according to God's word, when we feel like we're not getting what we need or deserve, is more than just a DNA-coded brain response. And in fact, according to God's word, this is not his will for your life or mine. In fact, God's word, as we go on, we see that those very actions, withdrawing or attacking over not getting what we want, Scripture describes that as what? Sin, right? Where sin is defined as anything that deviates from God's will or his word. It's not God's will for your life. And it's not the instruction of his word that you attack or withdraw from those who don't give you what you feel like you need. And in fact, the good news of God's word is that he gives us a remedy that is more than just medication or therapy. And his remedy for our lives, brothers and sisters is His sovereign grace in Christ. It's called the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. 
And the gospel begins, brothers and sisters, with God's word and his counsel in your life. And so this is going to be tied together what you all have been studying this week, biblical counseling. Can I have my next slide, please? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, you know this well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, complete, equipped for some good work. No, equipped for every good work. God's desire for your life and the provision for that is His Word, that you would be complete, that you would be mature. And He's given us everything we need in Christ. He's given us everything we need in His Word. And when we're talking about God's Word and what Paul is describing and, and, and reminding Timothy is Timothy's getting beaten down. Timothy, you're not doing it enough the way the Greek philosophers do it. You're not dynamic enough. You don't have enough programs in the church in Ephesus. And he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, stir up that sacred gift that you have in your heart. God's given you the gospel and you have everything you need. And he's reminding and he's encouraging Timothy. And we need this, this encouragement when we're discouraged and we're down and we're frustrated and life isn't going the way we'd hoped or wanted. And we start to look at our spouses, our marriage, our family, the people around us. Or just, why aren't they giving us what we need? And the Lord in love comes and he reminds us, my word is authoritative. There's nothing to compare. It's the final word. My word is inerrant. It is without error. My word is sufficient. Everything you need, I've given you in my word. My word is good. Why? Because God is authoritative. Because God is inerrant. Because God is sufficient. Because God, brothers and sisters, is good. And we need to be reminded of that. Especially when we're having a hard time. And through that, as we see what God's word is, we see that sin is anything that deviates from the will or word of God. Sin is anything that deviates from the will or word of God. And so that's why we can see by definition those, those things that are described in that article. Well, that's not God's will for our lives, brothers and sisters. We see that God's sovereign grace and his gospel begins with his word. And we might even go so far as to say it begins with biblical counseling. And what do we mean by biblical counseling? It's a distinctive of this church. And we want to lay it down and clearly define it because a lot of people feel that they have biblical counseling and everyone's a counsel. We all, counselor. We all give counsel. The question is, what's the counsel that comes out of our hearts and our mouths, Right? And many people feel that they're biblical counselors because they're able to give advice that they think is good and throw in a few Bible verses. But that's what's called integrative or Christian counseling, where we take the advice and the beliefs of the world, we mix it in with a few Bible verses, and we put together something that sounds good or makes us feel better. But as we come to God's Word, we see that biblical counseling is just simply counsel and instruction that comes from God and His Word counsel and instruction that comes from God and his word rather than men. It's very simple, right? And what the Lord God shows us as we come to Genesis chapter 4, the first account of human anger, is what we really need 
are not good feelings, brothers and sisters. What we really need is God and His Word. That's what we so desperately need. And what we really need is the gospel. And what we really need is biblical counsel. Instruction that comes from a God who is authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, and good. And who loves us. Perfectly. That's what we so desperately need. And so this morning as we come to Genesis 4. What I'd like us to consider and focus on is how does God love Cain? How does he shepherd Cain? How does he counsel Cain? To consider first, how does God counsel us? And then in turn, how does he call us to counsel others? Have a look at your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. And we'll read verses 1 through 10. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, clearly the God-breathed words of Genesis 4 are part of a bigger story. And it's a story which you know begins with God and His Word in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God reveals Himself as the infinitely good Creator King. Whose Word is what creates everything good. And that includes the first man and woman. But as we get to Genesis 3, the Lord God shows us how the first man and woman make a deadly choice. In fact, they choose to follow their feelings and what they feel they need. They choose to be sinful and they choose to be selfish. And they choose to serve quite simply themselves and what they think they deserve rather than God and His Word. Brothers and sisters, nothing has changed since the beginning. Nothing has changed and people function exactly the same way. God in His Word in Genesis 3 through 4 shows us the consequences of those choices that they make. Every choice we make, brothers and sisters, carries with it a consequence. And the Lord begins to show that to us. And what he shows us is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of original sin. 
the doctrine of original sin. And that refers to Adam's sin and the way it brings all of humanity because Adam is our head and he is our representative and he is the father of all humanity. Through Adam, sin and death enter into all of humanity and all of creation. And it brings all of humanity into a state of sinfulness and separation from the God who created us and who loves us. Now I know that sounds very theological, okay? And very removed. But brothers and sisters, we live this out on a daily basis, physically and spiritually, as we fall apart. And the reason the Lord shows us this is because he loves us and he's pointing us to the fact that we need a remedy that is more than a medication or a yoga studio. What we need is God himself because the problem is so great. And in Genesis chapter 4, God shows us how sin and death spreads like a deadly cancer or virus. It spreads one individual in one generation at a time. Even Adam, Adam and Cain, it goes all the way down. And as you finish Genesis 4, you see the genealogy as it goes and you see that sin grows from one generation to the next and it doesn't stay mild. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And families and parents, you know this. We've seen the way our family members, our children, exhibit the same sinful patterns that we have and some of those we haven't taught them. It's one of our spouse's delight. Did you notice the way in which A, B, C, D, and E does this? It's exactly the way you do it. It's the way you say it. And then some of it we teach through our tone and through how we model our behavior. But some of it's right there. And Genesis 4 goes on and it shows... How sin enslaves and corrupts our thoughts and our desires and our feelings and how it weaponizes our anxiety and our anger and uses them to destroy us, our relationship with God, and our relationship with one another, right? Wives, how exciting is it to spend that anniversary weekend with a husband who is anxious and worried the whole weekend, whether it's about his job or family or whatever. Oh, joy or bliss, that's what I'm looking forward to. If we're honest, these things come in, okay? And we say in and of itself, is anger wrong? Is anxiety wrong? Those are natural feelings. But we see as what the Lord shows us as he walks us through Cain's life, the way in which sin weaponizes these things and drives a wedge between our relationship with the God who loves us and the people we love and who love us the most. But the good news, brothers and sisters, of God's word is God is not telling us these things to discourage us. The good news of Genesis 4 is that God shows us his infinite goodness and grace is greater than our sinfulness and our selfishness. That is the gospel, and it begins in Genesis. And God's goodness and grace begins by pointing us back to him. God's goodness and grace comes in in our discouragement and our despair and he takes our eyes off ourselves and the things that we feel we need. I need a spouse. I need a friend. I need a job. And you may indeed need those things. 
But at the point that we can't see the Lord, brothers and sisters, we've lost everything because he's the one who loves us perfectly. And so we see where biblical counseling, God's counsel, the counsel of God's word always comes and where it always starts is it points us back to the God who loves us. And it does so through his counsel and his word. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. God's gracious counsel points us back to God. It points us back to his infinite goodness. And it points us back to his relationship with us. Yes, we all have a relationship with God. Might not be good, but we all have a relationship with God. And we see God's gracious counsel comes in and points us back to God. Now, what typically brings most people to us My wife was reminding me in a car this morning how many times people are looking for counsel, they're looking for advice. They might not necessarily be looking for a relationship with God. And what typically brings most people for counseling is we have a problem we want fixed. I have a problem with my spouse. I have a problem with my kids. I have a problem with my marriage. I have a problem with my anxiety. I have a problem with my roommate. I have a problem with my anxiety. In Cain's case, he's got an anger problem. And typically the hope and expectation is that counseling is going to fix my problem. Right? And what's our focus on all the way through? Me, 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 me. Right? Do I lie? Okay, and the focus of counseling is about my problem. And when my problem doesn't get addressed or that's not the focus, what are we doing all this homework about the character of God and who he is and the gospel? What's all this got to do with my problem? Well, beginning with the Lord's response to Cain's offering in verse 4. And then moving on to God's shepherding of Cain. And his anger in verses 5 through 7. And then his warning to Cain about sin in verse 7. And then in verse 10, asking Cain, Cain, what have you done? What is the priority of God's counsel, brothers and sisters? Is it to remove or fix Cain's anger so Cain can go and feel better about himself and get on with his life? So Cain can get a good night's sleep at night? No, right? The priority of God's counsel is to point Cain and us back to him. That's why God asks all those questions. And why does God do this? It's because God loves us, brothers and sisters, and what we really need is him. And his desire for us, and this is the testimony of God's word from creation to the cross to revelation. God's desire over and over and over again is that we as his creation would rightly know him. So that we can have a right relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, and when folks come in and they get this homework in biblical counseling, we go through who is God and what has he done for you? Well, what's this got to do with A, B, C, D, and E? And we have to ask ourselves, can we really have a relationship with someone we don't know? Just go and ask your spouse, right? Or our children for that matter. And one of the tragedies in counseling is to meet parents whose children are in college and their children believe they never knew their parents because all their parents did 
All their parents did was pay for the bills, get them to school, get them to soccer practice, get them, did, they did all of those things. And the parents come in heartbroken and they say, I did everything for them. I got them to a good college. I paid for all their expenses. I got them golf lessons. And now they say they don't know me. Well, brothers and sisters, God and his perfect desire and his love for you is that you would know him so that you can have a right relationship with him. And to do that, he has to point us back to him. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And we see this all the way through. In love, God created us to know him and to be with him and to have a right relationship with him. And then he sends his son to die for our sins. Why? Because what is it that destroys our knowledge of God and our relationship with him? It's our sin. It distorts everything. And why does God send his Holy Spirit to his children to live in you? The counselor. The comforter. Why does he do that? He does it so his presence is in you pointing you back to who Jesus is. Who God is. And the good news of your salvation. And you see, the Lord has done everything that you need to enjoy His love and to walk in it and delight in it in a way that is good and pleasing to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we walk through Scripture, we see this over and over again. How, what is Jesus' counsel for those who struggle with anxiety? Take five minutes out of your day, slow down, stop thinking, clear your mind. Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His remedy for anxiety is to point us in the pursuit of God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And then before he dies, John 17 he prays for unity for his disciples. That they wouldn't be divided in conflict. That there would be unity with God and unity with one another. John 17, 3, part of his prayer. And this is eternal life. That they know what? How to manage their anger. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so that's why, brothers and sisters, in biblical counseling, we start with the gospel. And we start with who God is. And we give homework and heart work to walk through. Because usually by the time things are broken and we're having a hard time, we've been staring at our problems so much and I'm there with you. And we're discouraged and we're in despair. All we can see is the darkness of our sin in this world and the ugliness of it. And God's love for us, we need a fresh vision of who our God is and how he loves us and what he's done for us. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our second point this morning. God's gracious counsel holds all of us accountable to his word. God's gracious counsel holds all of us accountable to his word. According to God's word, our real problem, and we see this with Cain, is Cain's refusal to be held accountable by God. 
I want to do it my way. And God in love points him back to God. Hey, Cain, guess what? There's a relationship here. There's a God who loves you here in case in your anger you forgot to see it. And guess what, Cain? You're accountable to my word. And that's what God's gracious counsel does. And God does this right from the start in response to Cain and his anger. And this is where biblical counseling starts, brothers and sisters. And this is why people don't particularly like biblical. They talk about it and they say, I know biblical counsel, counseling, but do we really want to be held accountable? Do we want our lives held accountable to the word of God rather than to what we think is right or wrong? Well, we see this right from the beginning in verse 3 through 4. And then in verse 4 and 5, it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. That word for regard means approved, accepted, pleased. And here the Lord makes it explicitly clear to Cain and us. He cares about our lives and our offerings. He cares about our worship and our service. He cares about the entirety of us, what we present to him, what we come to him with. All of it, including our worries and our woes, by the way. But he cares about it. He notices it. He's keeping track. Points out that we are indeed accountable to him. And brothers and sisters, how often do we stop and think about this as we talk with our spouses, as we shepherd our children, as we interact with our difficult employers or friends or roommates? How often do we stop and think for a minute that we are accountable to God and God cares about what we say or do and God is pleased or he is not pleased? He separates and he discriminates. Yes, God discriminates according to his word. He discriminates what is good and what is not good. And in fact, we begin to see that this is what sets Cain off. What is it that triggers Cain's anger? That God has made a decision. Abel and his offering is good. Cain and his offering is not good. Cain has not been validated by God. Brothers and sisters, how often do we get upset or angry because we are not being validated on our jobs? We are not being validated in our marriages. We are not being validated in our ministries. I did all this work. And all I could do was they complained about A, B, C, D, or E. Now, brothers and sisters, that's me. That's all of us. But I can tell you when that's me, that's not coming from the Lord and it's not good. Right? Because who am I worried about? Am I worried about pleasing the Lord? I'm worried about me. And that's called pride and selfishness. And we see that with Cain. So how does the Lord respond? As Cain in response, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. How does the Lord respond? Does he come and say, well, that, that's just Cain. He's a feeler. He's a little emo today. It's his time of the month. He's, you know, a little immature, Cain. A little bit childlike. We need to just take care of him. He needs to vent a little. Maybe we'll give Cain a little bit of a time out. Take a break. Take a vacation, Cain. This is just normal, according to Dr. Gupta. Well, the Lord God does none of those things. And why? Because he loves Cain. 
And righteous love does not ignore or avoid the truth. In love, the Lord holds both Cain and Cain's anger accountable to his word. And he does it with a very simple and gentle rhetorical question. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And it's worth noticing that God shepherds the whole person. He looks at Cain, his spiritual issue, his anger, the whole person. But he also accounts for his face, his physical well-being as well. Cain, your face don't look so hot. And with this question, God lets Cain know that he sees Cain's anger. He cares about Cain's anger. But he's also letting Cain and us know we must answer to God and his word for everything in our lives, brothers and sisters. Our feelings, our responses, our spirit, our physical expression, the rolling of our eyes, all of those things God sees, but it's also our responsibility and we're accountable to the Lord for that. And we're accountable to his word. And then in verse 7, the Lord asked Cain a second rhetorical question. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, the answer is obviously yes, right? In Hebrew, that word well is tov, tov. And it refers to what is good. Tov is also translated good in Hebrew. And it's the word God uses in Genesis 1 to affirm his creation and his work. The creation work of his word, including the creation of the first man and woman, right? And you go through every time and, and the Lord saw it and he said it was good. And the Lord saw it and he said it was good. And the Lord saw it and said it was good. And then he said it was very good. That term good is God's standard of what is right and wrong and what is good. And it is defined by God's character and his word, what God does. That is God's standard with which he measures us with. What's the Lord doing here? He's reminding Cain and he's reminding us that the Lord is not just our creator and friend. He is also our good and righteous and holy judge. He loves what is good. He hates what is evil according to his word. He's reminding Cain and us that the measure of our lives is what he says is good, not what we think is good. And it's in this way the Lord God gently expresses who and what Cain is really angry about. Who's, who's Cain really angry with? angry with God and he's angry with what God's word says is good and acceptable right God's word says Abel and his offering is good and pleasing to me God's word says Cain and his offering is not good and acceptable this is what Cain is upset with and it's in this way God is showing Cain Cain Everything in your life, including your reaction and responses, your desires, your convictions and beliefs, they're accountable to me. And I am good and holy and I refuse to accept what is not good and I insist on accepting what is good according to my word. So we bring this home, brothers and sisters, in biblical counseling as we gather together and point people 
We don't counsel. We point people to the Word of God. What does God's Word have to say about what you're going through right now? And as the light of God's Word shines down, it's going to make some distinctions. Hey, some of these things are good and some of these things are not good. And you're accountable entirely to God. But the good news is this is a God who loves you and cares for you and has the remedy. But the catch and rub, brothers and sisters, as we go through these things is how often do we want to be held accountable to God for the things that are not good in our lives? How much would we rather cover up and conceal and show the good and the ugly stuff we'll just put here? But the problem is you put the ugly stuff over here and you fill it up, you fill it up, you fill it up. Eventually it bursts, right? God's going to show Cain that. We see that with God, His love is not blind. And His love is not about tolerating and accepting everything in anyone, regardless of how you are. It's not unconditional love. He's not there to make us feel like our anger and everything we do is right. His love begins, brothers and sisters, by holding us accountable to His Word so He can give us the remedy. I had a dear friend in college. He ended up going on to have a very successful academic career. But he shared with me as he grew up in a fairly affluent home with affluent parents who sent him to one of the best private schools in the nation that he wasn't doing well in high school. He had a drug problem. Probably had more than a drug problem. And I remember asking him and saying, well, what did, what did your parents say? And he said, they didn't care. I would sit there at the dinner table shaking and going through drug, whatever, whether it was withdrawals or whatever, and they just kept on eating their meal. What he went on and just paraphrasing what was implied was his parents didn't want to deal with the problem. It was an interruption in all the things that they had to do. And they probably didn't know how to deal with it. Brothers and sisters, that's not our God. And that's certainly not love. Our God comes in when we're troubled and having a hard time. When we're anxious or angry. Maybe even when we're discouraged or in despair. Maybe even when we're on a path that is sinful and not good and sinking. And in love, he comes and he gently asks us questions. Why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Why are you discouraged? Why are you in despair? Now, I'm not coming and saying anybody who is discouraged or in despair is sinning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our God globally comes to us and he addresses us. And he offers to shine the light of his word so he can show us what's good and what's not. And this brings us to our third point this morning. God's gracious counsel exposes the destructive and ruling desires of our heart. God's gracious counsel exposes the destructive and ruling desires of our heart. And this is what the Lord does in the rest of verse 7. As he follows his rhetorical question, if you do well and good, will you not be accepted? With a warning. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And it's in this way as God puts these two if statements together. If you do well and good, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Well, what the Lord does is he's showing Cain there's two paths here. 
And you'll see he does that through Proverbs, and Jesus does that throughout his Gospels, and Psalm 1, there's these two paths in life. And the Lord begins to show Cain through this what is really ruling his heart. There's nothing like a choice, brothers and sisters, that shows us what's really going on inside. Our choices show what we want or we desire. Our choices are a test of our heart, whether it's a choice of blessing or a choice of curse. And with this, the Lord is showing Cain why Cain is so angry. And he does this by showing Cain and us. He's given us each a choice and a responsibility. A choice or a responsibility to either do well or good according to his word. Or to not do well or not do good according to his word. Brothers and sisters, every choice you make, there's two choices. Either it's a choice to please the Lord or please yourself. Everything. And God goes on to show that one choice is indeed pleasing to God and acceptable to God. And the other choice is acceptable and pleasing to our sin, which is crouching at the door. And it's in this way Cain is being shown by the Lord that God holds us responsible not just for our lives, but for our choices and our desires. And the choices and desires we make have consequences. Consequences that we're responsible for. And it's in this way the Lord God showing Cain and us where the road to our anger leads and where it begins. Shows us the whole path. And this is God's love to us. How gracious is our Lord. Right? And this is why we read to our children Pilgrim's Progress and Pilgrim's Journey. You know, it's a paraphrase to show us from beginning to end. And that's the Lord. He's good. He shows us from beginning to end. He doesn't pop these things on you and says, whoops. Shows us from beginning to end. And he shows us that the road to anger begins in our hearts with our desires and our beliefs about what we think we should have or is rightfully ours. And this is what informs the choices we make and how we respond when we don't get what we want. R.T. Jones, who wrote a very good book, Uprooting Anger, writes, anger begins in the heart. And he goes on to point out that it is typically a whole person response, spiritual and physical, Yes, our brains are involved. Yes, our bodies and hormones are involved. But it's typically a whole person response to not getting what we want or we believe we deserve. Brothers and sisters, how much of our anger or what we've been upset about or anxious over the last week comes down to what we think we need or what we believe we should have. How do we respond when we don't get what we think we need or deserve? Well, what's going on with Cain? What's God pointing out? Where does Cain's anger come from? What does Cain want? He wants to be accepted by God. What's so bad about being accepted by God? That's a great desire, isn't it? There's another half to that, though. And we see what unfolds of Cain's conditions for being accepted by God. We start to see that as the rest of the story plays out. It gets exposed. 
Brothers and sisters, we can all start with good desires. We come to the church, we sing the songs. Over time, what God shows through our choices and the choices we make, well, what really is that desire? And the fullness of Cain's desires, I want to be accepted by God on my terms and not God's. I want to bring the offering I bring to God, and God should accept that rather than accepting my brother's. There's a little bit of ancient Near East context with this, okay? In the ancient Near East, the oldest son, the people who read this, the Jews, when they were reading this during the time of Deuteronomy, they would know the oldest son is the preeminent one. He's the one who should receive the praise. He's the one who should get the most accolades. He's the one who's going to rule and represent. Well, God says, I'm not a respecter of persons. I measure by goodness and grace not by family lineage or what you think you deserve or what you've earned. God is no respecter of persons. Praise God for that. Right? Cain is angry because he's had a good desire that has become warped and turned into a sinful desire by his sin. A desire that according to his word and his work, he would be accepted by God. Brothers and sisters, how often in our marriages and in our families and our work do we get angry with a good desire that gets warped and it's about our terms. I did all this for my employer and it wasn't good enough for him. I did all of this in church. It wasn't good enough for him. I did all this homework in my council. It wasn't good enough for him. I did all this for my wife and it's not good enough for her. Well, according to whose terms, brothers and sisters? And when it goes on our terms, who ultimately are we trying to please? God or us? And God shows very gently through this, well, at the end of the day, Cain, what's shown out through this in your anger is that you're really more concerned about pleasing yourself rather than God. And then God goes on to say to him, Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And when he says sin is crouching at the door, in the ancient Near East, what stood at your door was part of your household. Sometimes you go to those houses and they've got statues of dragons or statues of lions in the front. And they go back to the time where there may have been wild animals at the front door as a guardian or a protection, whether they be dogs or whatever else is there. And when we go to the tent of meeting in Exodus... Moses places Joshua in front of the tent of meeting to guard the tent of meeting where people, so people cannot approach the Lord. Joshua is the guardian of there. And then when the temple and the tabernacle is built, it's the priests who serve as the guardians of the door. They're the gatekeepers. They allow that whatever comes in and whatever goes out is acceptable to the Lord. So when God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. He's showing what is ruling, what is the gatekeeper, what is already present in your life. Brothers and sisters, by the time we sin, angry word, angry response, ugliness, that's not God who's ruling in the gatekeeper. It's our sin and our sinful desires. And they're controlling everything that comes in and goes out. And we see that with people who get really dark. And you see that anything that you talk to them about or anything that you say is just filtered through that darkness or that bitterness. God's warning Cain and he's showing Cain, sin's already present in your life and it's distorting these things. But he goes on when he describes it as crouching, he describes it as a predatory animal. It's not going to be satisfied with a little bit. 
It's not passive. It's going to take and take and take and take until it's enslaved you, it controls you, and it's devoured you, and there's absolutely nothing left. And isn't that the Proverbs description of the adulterous woman? And isn't that Proverbs description of wealth gained by deceitful or or sinful measure? God and love is warning Cain. Sin is what's driving this. It's a sinful desire that's ruling your life. And it's controlling everything. And if you don't address it and you just think, it's just a mistake. I just had a bad night's sleep. It was no big deal. It's going to destroy you. It's in this way the Lord God's counsel shows Cain and us. What we really need to be considering is what are the ruling desires of our heart. And R.T. Jones goes on to point out, Cain was angry because he could not get what he wanted or believed he deserved. And he goes on to say that sinful anger always starts in the heart with evil desires and wrong beliefs. In Scripture, those are referred to as lusts and lies. Lusts and lies. We worship not the Creator and we exchange the truth of God for a lie that puts us and makes us God. And this is where Cain is. And brothers and sisters, we always have to ask with our anger and our anxiety, is this what's ruling my heart? And it's helpful, brothers and sisters, to go and look at our lives when we're angry or we're anxious. God's given those to us to say, I want your attention. Something's not right here. And maybe you have been sinned against. And maybe there is something that's wrong, but God's still getting our attention to go to him and say, okay, what is it that I really want and desire here? And those of you who have come to me, you know I'll give you a chart. And I'll say, okay, write out first your feelings. What are you feeling right now? Anger, anxiety, whatever. What was the trigger or circumstance? You know, my boss shouted at me. And then I want you to write out your thoughts. What are you thinking? Nobody cares for me. Nobody treats me well. I didn't get what I deserve. Write it out. And then put down, what do you desire? What are you looking for? For many of us, we just want to be treated well by a family member or an employer. But then we can go down and go through that. Feelings, desires, thoughts, actions. And write down, what does God's word say? And just go to Psalm 23. You're not alone. God is your shepherd and he loves you. He will cause you to be beside still waters. He's going to feed you. He's going to lead you through those dark valleys. Oh, what I'm thinking is not true. What do I want? Just to be left alone. Well, God is my shepherd. Maybe he doesn't want me to be left alone. Wrong desires or ruling desires, right? What are my feelings? Anxiety, frustration, anger. And then we start to see how much of our anxiety and frustration and God's actually bringing problems into our lives, brothers and sisters, in love to get our attention to say, look, your real problem is me. I'm the one you need. And this brings us, brothers and sisters, to our final point this morning. God's gracious counsel shows us our desperate need for his sovereign grace. It's worth noting how much we trivialize our sin. It's not a big deal. How much we trivialize our feelings, we do. But what God's gracious counsel 
where he brings it, he says to Cain, its desire is contrary to you, but you, emphatic, you must rule over it. Now, which one of us is able to rule over our sin and sinful desires? What's your track record? Mine isn't very good. And what God begins to plant the seed for here with Cain is Cain cannot do it on his own. He needs someone and something that is greater than his sin and his sinful desire to rule over his life. He needs God's grace. He needs God as king. He needs God's help in order to rule over his sin. And brothers and sisters, this is why our God in love sent his son to die on the cross for you and I so that we would no longer be slaves to our sin and we would no longer live for pleasing ourselves, but instead his sovereign ruling grace would rule over our lives and that Christ would be our king That we would know his goodness and grace. That we would live for him. And that we would have new desires. That are ruled by Christ not our sin. Where our joy and desire is to please God and be with him. And that's why we see people who are radically saved and radically transformed. Their only desire is to read the word and be with God's people. I just want to be with him. God's taking Cain and us, brothers and sisters, step by step to the remedy. And the remedy, brothers and sisters, very simply, is always repentance and faith in Christ. Because repentance and faith in Christ for the entirety of our lives is simply turning away from ourselves, our sinful desires, and the ruling of our lives, waving the white flag and say, Lord, I've messed it up and I can't make it better. Would you come in and rule my life? Would you fix the problem? And the Lord says, there's one place where that problem is going to be fixed. It's going to be fixed at the foot of the cross where my son has died for your sins, past, present, and future. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is greater. And his blood is able to forgive all and His rule in your life, which starts now till he comes back, is able to redeem all the things that you've broken and made ugly. What a God. What a Savior. And what a gift in the way he shepherds and counsels our anger. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how desperately we need you. But Lord, we rejoice because you have given yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, for bringing things into our lives that have been hard and difficult and perhaps they have provoked anger and frustration and anxiety. But Lord, you've allowed these things to come into our lives to show us you are good. Your word is good. It is sufficient for all our needs. And the remedy is Christ ruling our lives and not us. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray, amen.